Hey everybody, Oliver Purcell here. So last week I made a mistake and I didn't have the right mic selected when I started recording the show. So uh, my audio track sounds terrible. Uh, Timothy did his best to clean it up and make it sound good, but it still sounds pretty bad. But uh, we think it's passable enough. So please excuse uh, the lower quality audio track on my side of things this week. And we promise that episode 11 will be right back to normal. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. All right. Well, let me take 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 us in. I guess. Um, yeah. Take us in. <laughs> good morning. This is making movies is hard, where we talk about the everyday struggles of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Oliver Brissell, and with me is Timothy Plain. Good morning. Episode ten. Here we are. Oh yeah. And Timothy, tell tell the fine folks out there where you are right now. <laughs> I am in New York City right now. And my room is overlooking Broadway, so I think that probably sometime during this episode we're going to get a little taste in New York. There's been sirens going off all night. There's mm. people yelling outside the window, mm. so something will bleed through. Sounds like Oakland flavor. to me. <laughs> I know. Lately in San Francisco, I've been woken up at like three in the morning by garbage trucks and like the delivery trucks, and I've been like, "Oh man, San Francisco is getting so loud." And then I just spent one night in New York, and is thinking uh san francisco's nothing like new york right this it's is constant yeah this is a real city <laughs> <laughs> this is a real city now, how do you feel about the podcast like we're 10 episodes deep did this live up to your expectations exceed your expectations yeah like, how are you feeling about it i point? sort of exceeded my expectations honestly like i didn't know that we would have people actually listening at to us at 10 episodes and um, I'm not saying that we have a million listeners but just yesterday I was out in the world and um, I, I had two people separately reference the podcast um, oh, cool. so you know one person who um, I uh, worked with once before at a production company in Berkeley and I just went in there to do some work and he was like oh yeah man we've been listening to your podcast and I was like oh god yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, Oh yeah, he only you know he hadn't listened to everything, every episode, but just a couple. And I mean, he he seemed to like it, so that was good. And then, yeah, I called a production company to get a rental, and he was like, "Yeah, man, like, blah blah blah." This girl, it's actually I think somebody you know, Charlotte from yeah, your, Charlotte. Huh? Yeah, yeah we work together. Yeah, so there's something going on where she might need a producer or something. So he was he was trying to connect me to her, and then. He said oh, that cool. she knew me through the podcast, and I was like, oh, God, cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think her boyfriend works with you on stuff, too. Yeah. His name might be Scott. Scott, Scott Kruger, which he, he's a really freaking cool guy. Um, I met him last summer working on a feature. Uh, but, yeah, and then he works with those guys, which is funny because, like, I met him on that feature, which was not connected to the other production company, and then I did a job with them a few months ago, and then he was – there and i was like oh shit scott what's up bro <laughs> so yeah so yeah small i guess it's just a small world but i mean they were kind of people who probably would have listened to it anyways because you know yeah of connections those to are the, us. actually 
those are the kind of people where I, I kind of expected that they would listen to it because, yeah, they know us and they want to kind of hear what we have to say about things. I don't know why, but... Yeah, I think the, the feedback that I hear the most uh, is that we're honest and sincere, which is uh, really good because that's what we've been shooting for is just to be honest and just straightforward about our struggles and, you know, just not talk about only the good things and also talk about the things that we're having a t- hard time with, you know, so... I don't know. I think we just need to keep it up. But uh, I guess my point about that, just my experience yesterday, is I didn't think that anyone would notice independently without me telling them directly. And the fact that people are just finding it, I mean, even though they're finding it through, you know, friends of friends or whatever, I mean, it's still more than I expected it to be. Like, I thought, like, you know, I'd have, like, the five people I sent it to who'd listen to it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right. And then, of course, the people who we don't know from other places who are finding us and talking to us on Twitter and stuff, that's pretty amazing, too, so. Yeah, I thought episode 10, getting listener questions, was going to be pretty ambitious, and it actually was pretty doable. We got a lot of questions here we're going to answer today, and thanks, everyone, for sending in your questions, and let's, you know, we'll see what happens. I don't think we're going to have... A ton of answers for anybody. If anyone, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know we just kind of just talk about our experiences with things, and uh, I feel like by the end of the episode, you just kind of hear the different points of view on things. But there's never any real answer. There's no real answers for this stuff, right? Yeah, no. You just have to kind of figure it out yeah, for yourself and, and do what works. Exactly, and we can just talk about what we've done and what works for us and how we approach things. But I think even those answers, depending on what the questions are, I mean, they're going to change, too, because we're just going to be trying different things as we grow as filmmakers and trying to figure things out, you know? Um, Is there anything else you want to talk about before we get started? Anything going on in your life right now that's, uh, you know, driving you crazy or making you happy or something? Not really. I mean, there's this last week has been really good. I think a lot of great stuff has happened, but... I kind of don't want to say anything right now. I don't want to jinx it. Oh, did you? Are you? Did you uh, sign on to some, uh, you know, multi-picture deal at Sony or something? No, it's nothing. It's nothing that big. It's more. There's the hope that Spirit Machine is going to be finished soon, but I don't want to make a public announcement because every time I promise something, I fail to deliver on that promise, mm. and so I am done promising. Okay. And Things are good, though. All my visual effects companies are on the same timeline. And if all goes well, pretty soon, all the visual effects will be done and I'll be able to announce when it's going to be released. Awesome. Amazing. Oh, that makes me so happy. It's been like three years of torture. Three years. Wow. So um, so when that happens, what is the next step for Spirit Machine? Um, kind of short term is to rent movie theaters and show it to all the backers. Mm, nice. So I'm going to do um, movie theater screenings in L.A., San Francisco, and New York. Mm. If your donation amount was $100, then you got one of these movie theater screenings. So I think there's like a few hundred people that will be coming to see it that way. So, Timothy, what about us poor schlubs who weren't able to be a part of this wonderful uh, Kickstarter called uh, Spirit Machine? How can we go to these screenings? I can't believe you didn't hear about it. Where were you? I was uh, living under a rock. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was everywhere. You know what it was? I was working on my movie at that time. It was a little swamped. I missed it. Yeah. Well, I've been trying to think about how to get other people involved that want to see it 
that didn't that weren't part of the Kickstarter campaign. And I'll figure it out. I just want to make sure that it's fair to the people that already did back it, that it doesn't feel like, oh, I could have just waited and then I wouldn't have had to spend a hundred bucks. Yeah, I think I, I I didn't actually care about that. When I, I did this exact same thing for my my short film. I don't think my I don't think it was a hundred dollars to get a ticket. I think it was more like fifty or seventy five. I guess it's pretty close. But um I basically just made sure everybody on the kick the list for that got a, a invitation and then I just sort of you know invited people on top of that just to fill the, the theater and I didn't charge for tickets or anything so I wasn't really thinking about like oh these guys paid for it and these guys didn't I was just thinking like mm. you know let's fill this theater however we can and, and no one seemed to care but oh, okay you know then maybe I'll just do that yeah because I, I would think love to have full theaters People want people want want to see it with a packed crowd, right? And want to make it wants it wants to people want to feel like it's a big event. So, you know, I think it's more important to just get a lot of butts in seats than it is to worry about people paying the same amount. You know, that's my opinion personally. That's fair. I just would hate to do that, and then people afterwards be like, "Hey, man, I don't think those people paid." <laughs> yeah. Well, they didn't. They That'd didn't be Ulrich to... in the theater being like, "Hey, I didn't, I didn't back it. Did you back it?" <laughs> ruining, ruining everything. I won't say anything. Be quiet. <laughs> um, so, how about uh, you? What's going on with you in the last week? Uh, yeah, any he, closer to making your feature film? No. Um, <laughs> I, I, I need, it's only been a week. Don't be too hard on yourself. I need to write more. I haven't really been writing enough lately. I've been working on a lot of other things. Like I've got a couple big corporate video projects I'm doing, and then. I've got a uh, that web series that I'm getting ready to direct, so we're prepping for that and doing um, casting and stuff. So I feel like I've got a lot going on, and I'm, of course I'm also trying to finish my short film, Brother, too. So I've got a lot of things happening, but I'm not doing a lot for my feature right now, which is sort of making me very sad. Um, so I think I, I want to start trying to write an hour a day, no matter what, and like just do it. And I think today will be the day I'm going to start just an hour a day. I don't care. I have the busiest day of my life today. I have like a 12-hour shoot, you know, that starts at noon. And you're recording a podcast right now. And I'm recording a podcast. But I don't <laughs> care. I'm going to write an hour today. I have to. I okay, need to. Okay, 6.30 in the morning. What time is your shoot? Uh, I have to be at the production company at 12.15 to drive to Napa. And we wrap at midnight in Napa. Okay, so you're going to have to write before you go. Yep. <laughs> I think you you just need to commit to a time right now. What what hour are you going to choose to write? I'm going to write between um, eight and nine, or whenever okay. we finish this podcast, for, and then for an hour, or whichever comes first. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's get into this, man. Uh, do you want to read the first question, or shall I read it off? How do you want to do this? Daniel C. J. Grant, is that it? At Daniel C. J. Grant gave us a lot of questions so the first part of the show is dedicated to all of his questions yeah uh, lucky guy <laughs> i told him if you keep submitting stuff it's just going to be the daniel cj grant show close it got close um so his first question is what's a good short film like to start out with as a beginner from a script perspective so i'm assuming he's just writing scripts right now and then he had a follow-up to that a little later, and he asked how detailed should a script be because he's heard that directors hate a script with too much detail. Um, and I told him we would answer that just like as directors ourselves, reading other scripts, how much do we feel is too much detail? 
There's a million different ways to think about this. Like, is he thinking about this as a writer trying to get a director to direct his short, or is he thinking of this as a writer who wants to then direct the short that he's writing? And how does it change things for you? How does it change things? Well, yeah. Um, I think, I guess it doesn't really change him that much. I mean, I think like, you know, if you're working, if you're writing for yourself, essentially, I think you don't have to worry about like you know, how detailed the script should be and those things as much because you're just writing it for you and it's like if it makes sense to you and you can translate that to a crew, then that it is what you should be writing or how you should write it, you know? But if you're writing for somebody else, like, it, it should be as clear and I kind of think as detailed as, as possible because, you know, you, you want to be able to give them your vision right like you want to be, mm -hmm. you want someone to be able to read the script and then see the movie in their head so i mean you need to be detailed but you you can't be you can't over like you can't over describe and overwrite at the same time so it's like this this wonderful balance of like trying to be extremely descriptive and clear and give you give an emotion but without wasting a ton of page space. Yeah, I think what he's probably asking with the detail on a script is, I think you hear a lot, like don't write camera movements into your scripts or don't write camera angles into your scripts. Like I wouldn't go as far as to like create every single shot for a, a, for a script, but I like, I sometimes like when writers are thinking about how it's going to be shot and how it's going to come together as a finished piece and that they write something in there that helps me see it, then I'm all for it. So I think the more you can write as if you're watching a movie that's playing on the screen, I think the better it is for me as a reader and as a, as a director when I'm reading scripts. I like that. Yeah, I agree. I think like giving some sort of perspective is, is nice, you know, because it helps to build tension and create mood, you know? And I think, people who say you should never include camera direction or whatever i think that's sort of an old-fashioned sort of idea maybe in that uh i don't know people i talk to seem to like it you know and i think it, it yeah, just helps i wonder if maybe people at one point were just like writing camera angles for everything you know mm. like every action had like medium close-up jane looks at a locket close-up randy says hello and then, you know, like every single shot, they just like kind of marked out what it was instead of just like describing what was happening. But I've never read a script where I thought, oh, wow, they put way too much camera descriptions in here. I never felt that way. Yeah. And I think like, I don't, I don't really know, like there's all kinds of stupid rules. Like people say like, oh, you shouldn't say we see, you know, it just needs to be like very clear. Like, I don't know, like a man in the distance, you know, sh shuffling some cards or whatever. You know, but like not we see a man in the distance shuffling some cards. I don't think it really matters either way which what you do there. Yeah, I think so too. And then to answer his question about what's a good short film length, if you're a beginner, I think in theory, I would say go for like 60 seconds. <laughs> super short. But in practice, because I didn't tell anything in 60 seconds when I first started making stuff, I just told stories that I wanted to tell. I don't... I mean, I'm not one to say don't be like super ambitious and try to go for like a 20 minute short. But if that's what you got, I mean, just go for what feels right to you. Like whatever, I would look at other shorts that you like and just go for that. If you really love 
a three a bunch of three minute shorts then that's probably what you want to do yeah i'd say like you know if you're gonna make it it's easier if it's shorter and i think it's better like for you as a filmmaker if it's shorter also like not saying like 60 seconds necessarily but if it's like around five minutes or so like that's a really digestible length that people are going to want to watch and that you know if you're if your goal is to get into film festivals, like I think a shorter five minute short film is got a way better chance than like a 20 minute short film, you know? But yeah. if, if your goal is just to get better and you're going to like, you know, put this in, in the, the closet or whatever, it's just for practice for you. Then I'd say, you know, length it doesn't necessarily matter as much. But I mean, when you're when you're making your first movie, just try to make it as easy on yourself as possible because it's going to be hard enough as it is. So, you know, like one location, like two or three actors, maybe just two actors, <laughs> you know. It's so easy to say that stuff, but you can't just like, oh, I'm going to whip up an idea with one location and two actors. Well, it's it, not always that it, simple. No, it's not, but it, it challenges you as a writer too because I, I've heard this thing and I actually believe it. I don't, I'm don't. i going to paraphrase this quote, but like it's like if you, if you give yourself more restrictions, it actually can make you be more creative, you know? Because if you, if you have no limits, your mind can just go in any direction and just get lost. But I think every indie filmmaker is already working within parameters. And those parameters are like, what can I do? What can I pull off? If you're like super good at visual effects, then you're going to write a story around visual effects that you know you can personally do. So I'd say look around at the resources you have and decide what's doable and what you can pull off and then write something around that. And I think everyone's probably going to naturally do that because they know they have to shoot it, that they probably just have to do it themselves. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think working with what you have is, is really an important thing, like using your own resources. Like if you have access to like a cabin in the woods or if you have access to a, a house or if you live in an apartment in the city that, you know, you can use in some way, like I think all those things can be tools that you will use as a writer when you're putting your first short film together, you know? But uh Yeah. And the reason I said sixty seconds was because if you're starting out and you don't know how many setups you can do in a day, I think if you do a sixty second short and you get like twelve setups in a day you'll make a really good 60 second short. But if you're like trying to do five pages in one day and you only have 12 setups, you're probably always going to fall short of that because all the shots are going to have to be super long to tell your story. So that's kind of why I like in theory, like 60 seconds to me would be like, you'll be able to shoot it all in one day. It'll be a really good thing to practice with and in editorial you'll be able to try a bunch of different options it's like a, a super easy bite-sized film to not only make but then for people to watch and if you can nail 60 seconds like you i think a lot of people would watch it that, that's true and i mean just going back to like what we did in film school or video school or whatever but like i mean i'm sure you had a similar class where like you're just making like it's like a continuity sh video or a continuity short where it's like you just have to tell a story with a beginning, middle, and end, or even just a beginning and an end. So it's like making a sandwich and just shoot somebody making yeah, a sandwich. Making it, yeah, exactly. And and learn about the 180 and crossing the line and like how how can you cut in between angles? I think always when you first start out, you like want to do extreme close ups. 
And so you do like you go from wide to an extreme close up and then you learn, oh, you can't really go that close super fast that you probably needed something in between. You're just going to learn so much, anything you do. So, yeah, just shoot somebody eating a, or making a sandwich and eating it. That's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. There's your film. <laughs> <laughs> and I think thinking simple is also really good. Like some of the best shorts I've seen have very simple concepts or very like sort of really minimalistic approaches like this one I just saw I'm gonna give it away but um, it's called brother and I found it because I was searching for other shorts um, named brother just say, to see are you talking about your film you're like no oh, this is just <laughs> no no and it's this I can't remember the guy's name I'll try to put it in the show notes or something but it was this really cool like four or five minute short film and it's like I think it's either one shot or just a couple shots and there's like no dialogue Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And it's just a man, um, like, sort of leaning over, you know, something. And then you reveal that it's a body. And he's got a a hammer. And he's putting his hand down. And he's, like, lifting it up. And it's, like, this really intense scene. Um, and it's just really short and really sweet and beautifully lit. And it basically, in the description, it says, this has started as a camera test and er- and turned into a short film. Trying to do something like that. It's just That's really cool. good. I really like that. I've never really thought about making films like that, where it's almost like you're just bringing a photograph to life and like telling a story just in kind of like almost like one moment in time. Like I, I like yeah, even like that idea of you just saying like somebody making a sandwich. If you could make someone eat making a sandwich and eating it interesting, then when you get to a real story, you'll be able to make that interesting. So I think just practice on just some small thing and like. Think really deeply, like, how can I make this awesome? What's what's my way into this that'll make this something really memorable and interesting? Yeah, and I think, you know, it, it shouldn't be, um, it should be valued. The, the simplicity of a story should be valued. So I think sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, like, I get too complicated with, with the shorts that I'm trying to tell or the stories I'm trying yeah, to tell, and it just too. gets too elaborate, and it's like you realize you don't have time to really go all all into all that craziness, you know? And so if you just distill it to, like, the simplest version and just sort of pull it away, then you're going to have a much stronger film in the end. Telling a simple story, something as simple as somebody eating a sandwich, that could lead to something really brilliant. You know, a friend of mine, he made a short film called Sandwich Mayhem when he was, like, 15 <laughs> or 16, and I think yeah. it's online. But it's a, it's a really brilliant, silent film that he did. Uh, with a couple of his friends and you know it's awesome well i think any of these questions that we're going to answer could turn into a whole episode so we're going to have to move on but i i mean you can tell like that that's a good question there's a lot of different answers too but dude follow follow your heart do it what feels right yeah and then his next question is um starting from scratch where should your first one thousand dollars go towards equipment this is great because I remember when I first started making movies, I thought that I had to have like a bunch of equipment. 
And now I'm I'm kind of on the opposite end where I'm like, I don't want any equipment because it goes out of date so quickly that then you're just constantly spending money trying to keep your equipment up to date. And it's better either just to rely on other people who have it or go rent it. But I think as a when you're starting out, you should buy something so you you're not having to rely on like getting stuff all the time. So don't you think you should at least have like some sort of basic camera, even if it's just just something for you to practice on? Well, I had so I basically when I started actually making films, um, I think I had already made some stuff through school, but I bought myself a little handy cam that was like you know. I think it was at the time like six hundred, seven hundred dollars or something. But it's like yeah. a little like mini DV, you know, standard def with a widescreen mode, sort of, um, you know, all automatic little camera. And I actually made a couple of shorts with that. Um, but I think I don't know. My answer is the same as like this question or some similar question in the first or second episode. But like. I would just find a really cool, you know, DP in your town who owns a camera and owns some equipment already and just partner with them and like make something really cool, you know, and save that a thousand dollars for, you know, all the other things, like even just food for your crew, you know? Right. So you're saying take that thousand dollars and invest it into one film rather than I think what he's asking is, should I spend my $1,000 on some equipment so I can make a bunch of films? Right, because I think, I think what happens a lot, people get so excited about the cameras and like trying to get the next camera and the latest gear and be on top of it that they just spend all their time, money, and energy thinking about cameras and they don't actually go out and make anything. And I think making something is, is way more important than the camera that you buy. For $1,000, you can't really get the best camera. I mean, you can get like a, you know, a Canon T2i or something, which is, you know, a good starter camera, but I mean, that doesn't cover sound or anything, you know? And so, I don't know. I mean, you could go out and buy a camera like that that could get you get you going, but I mean, I would I would just honestly, like my answer would be to take that money and invest it into um into your team and your crew and and worry more about like what you can do that doesn't cost money, like, you know, meeting a great team and collaborating with your with your filmmakers in your community like I would do that first well here's my counter argument I agree with you on all the things you're saying in terms of like investing money into <laughs> making movies don't agree but, that's boring <laughs> <laughs> but I also think that there's some value in having some piece of equipment that you own like I don't know what he wants to do like uh, all his he has a, some different questions about different things. One's about screenwriting. Now he's talking about cameras, and then he's going to ask about editing. So I'm not. I'm maybe he's trying to be a jack of all trades and and get his fingers in all the different disciplines and see what he wants to do. But I, from experience, when I felt like I wasn't very good at visuals and that I wanted my all my stuff to look better, I bought a nice camera and just started taking pictures and really focused on learning how to frame stuff and focused on lighting and I just use that that camera to just try things out and take still photographs and that helped me get much better at talking to DPs and knowing what camera angles I wanted and knowing uh, how to talk about light a little bit more so I think that there's 
if you invest in something, I think you can get some practice. Like, let's say you didn't get that handy cam and, and try all those little short films that you shot with it. How would Ulrich Purcell be different today if he didn't have that? I don't know. Like having, knowing, I guess it's also, it was a different world back then because I think it was actually before the 5D was a big deal when I bought that camera. Like, I don't think the, maybe the 5D existed, but I don't think people weren't using it the way they're using it now for sure. Um, but I'm just thinking about the landscape we're in right now. Like if I was 22 in this landscape, like I don't, I think I would have done things a lot differently, you know? Okay. Well, and I'll just say like in the last 10 years from when I saw people where cameras got to the point where they were affordable and people started with whatever that Panasonic mini DV camera was that then turned into like the P2 version, which then turned into all the 5D <laughs> stuff, which now I think is like now black magic. And then people are, are spending a lot of money and investing in reds. Like it's changed what five times. So every like two years, something new comes out and you can never stay ahead of it. Like the camera that I bought that first Panasonic DV cam is useless. It's sitting in my closet and I had fun with it while I did, but was it worth the $2,000 I spent on it? Probably not. I'm sure that I could have spent that $2,000 on a short film that I would have learned more from. Yeah, and there was a big jump. I mean, because from the Pan Panasonic DVX100, which might be the camera that you had. Um, or like DVX100. Yeah. Represent. Old school, baby. <laughs> um, but like a, the jump from that camera, and then they, there's like the HVX200, which is like yeah, the HD version. And then um, at the same time, even already the 5D was out there in the world or like starting to, maybe not in the beginning of the HVX200's life cycle, but like sort of near the end of it, like maybe three or four years after that came out. I'm, these are rough numbers. I, I, I mean, I was sort of just starting to get into the world of cameras at that time. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the 5D changed things because it was the first time that like you could actually get an image that looked ex extremely cinematic easily yeah you could change lenses yeah because the hvx 200 you could put a crazy ass mount on it to put cinema lenses on it and change lenses <laughs> but, that once. but that thing was crazy crazy <laughs> so i mean once the 5d was there and you could just throw in these like old still lenses onto a 5d and then you're starting to shoot movies with i mean it was just it's absolutely revolutionary you know it you know changed everything um but yeah i think uh, we answered that question pretty pretty accurately don't you think can we move on to the next one let's answer the last of, of daniel's questions which is um what's the most critical editing technique to master right away uh i want to hear your answer first timothy <laughs> I have no idea. This is this was such a tough one. I, I read it and I was like, that's kind of an interesting question. But at the same time, it's like, man, it's going to take me some time to think about it. What's the most critical editing technique to master? I, you know, I don't think the editing, like honestly, and this might piss off a lot of editors, you know, and maybe even, you know, piss off producers who might want to hire me as an editor. But I just don't think the techniques are really what's important. I think it's the eye and being able to decide when to cut and when not to cut and, and when, when what shot to use out of your list of shots and how, how you tell your story. I think that's the most important part of editing. I don't think there's one technique that really stands out in my opinion, you know? Well, I think every editor that I've worked with, like I worked with a ton of editors on the, the TV production side and they all come with their own pacing and sensibilities so i think you 
any anybody in this industry comes to a project with their sensibilities and an editor is no exception to that. So I think you have to decide like what is it that you like when you see something that you said, oh, that's good editing, go dissect that and figure out how they did it. I think probably one tip that I can I can point to right now is cut to people's eyelines. If somebody looks to another person, that's the place to cut to that person. Other than that, I don't really know what else I could say. I think that's that's probably the only the kind of tip that I can give to anybody. Practice just with hard cuts too. Yeah. Don't to get too fancy with it. Yeah, and, I, and I'd say, you know, um, yeah, avoid star wipes. No star wipes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a book by Walter Murch. I think it's called In the Blink of an Eye um, or something like that. I have it. It's this uh, little book about editing, and it's sort of put together through a bunch of his lectures that he did. Um, in the 90s and maybe even in the 80s too and um, you know it's interesting because he's all talking about editing on film but the same principles apply to digital editing and then they have a, a chapter in the end about digital editing which isn't really that interesting if you know anything about digital editing if you don't know anything about digital editing and you have no idea about it then it's really good it's to fascinating oh no it's, <laughs> it, it really helps because like it basically takes the whole book where he's talking about the principles of editing and editing on film, and it just translates everything he just talked about into digital editing. Somewhere along the way, I saw a documentary where he was cutting Cold Mountain, and he was standing up in front of an Avid, and he was showing how he makes in one edit. He looks at the screen, and he presses the space bar to stop it where he feels like the edit should be. He marks the marks where he stopped it. Then he goes back and he does the same thing again. I think like he does it three times. And if his mark always falls in the same place, he knows that that's where he needs to cut. And that I think comes from like the old school days of working with film or like you and I learned on tape to tape, reel to reel kind of stuff where you didn't have the luxury of like trying it a bunch of different ways. You had to like measure twice and cut once, right? Right. Once, you, once you've committed to it, if you want to change it later, you have to go back and redo the whole thing. So I think... I don't know how it's going to affect the next generation that doesn't have that experience, but I'm so glad that I had that experience of having to make very deliberate edits along the way and not just throwing a bunch of stuff in and and trying a bunch of things to see what works. Yeah. I think, you know, the equivalent of that now is when you're on a really strict deadline and you don't have a lot of time to just try a bunch of different things and you have to just Mm -hmm. move quickly. And I think that really helps. The only last thing I'll say about this, and this kind of just goes along with the first three questions we answered. There's anyone who promises like an easy way to either edit or an easy way to make a film look professional, or there's no nothing easy about this stuff. So I think there's no substitute for experience, and you really just have to like do it a bunch. And film, more than a lot of things that I know, I think really is about how much time you put into it and you're only going to get better by doing more of it. Don't expect that you're going to go in and you're going to make something amazing right away. It's just, it's not going to happen. So go into it knowing you're going to make something shitty and then learn from it and then make the next thing and keep making things until you get better. Yeah. How to edit your first movie. I I totally agree. I think it's like people want to have like answers, you know, and like Oh, if I knew how to do this thing, I'll be a, a good filmmaker. If I know how to do this thing, I'll be able, be able to be a good editor. But it's really, like you said, it's about experience and just making it happen. Um, yeah. So why don't you read the next one for us? All right. So at Cinema Fool asks, 
As an indie filmmaker myself, when it comes to location, what's your opinion on guerrilla style versus legit permits? You just did this, right? You just in when you shot Brother, you shot at the park in Oakland. Did mm-hmm. you permit that? I did. I did permit it, um, and pretty much because I had such a big crew coming out and um, a, a celebrity coming out to, to be in there, I just couldn't take the chance of getting shut down and doing it guerrilla style. And I knew with the amount of equipment and the amount of presence that we we're going to have that there was no way that we could really just get get away with it guerrilla style. Um, That's the answer right there. You, if you can get away with it and you have just like a few people and if the cops come, you can say, oh, I'm a student filmmaker, then you can probably steal it. But if you're going to have a big presence and it's going to look like a real shoot, then it's going to be really hard. It's going to be tough to talk yourself out of it. And if you can't afford to be shut down, then don't take the risk. And I think in L.A., you're, the chances of being shut down are much greater than anywhere else. I think in San Francisco, even on commercial stuff, uh-oh, I'd, maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but even on commercial <laughs> stuff, we'll, we'll steal locations, especially if you're only going to be there for like 20 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I've, I've heard in LA that like, I, I talked to a filmmaker I met at a film festival and he was saying that he got permits to shoot in a location in LA and he still got booted from the cop by the cops and he had his permit and everything with him. And he's like, no, look, I paid for this. I have my permit. And then they were like, no, it doesn't matter. Get out of here. Uh, you're what? disturbing the peace. Weird. Yeah, and so I'm like, oh my god, I don't want to shoot in LA ever. But, yeah, uh, I think I wouldn't stress too much about it, especially if you're a really small crew. Um, but if you feel like there's any chance that you're that it could ruin your film and you're spending money, like if you're spending money on crew to come out and you get shut down uh, on a ten hour shoot in an hour, and you have no movie and you're out all that money, I mean, that's where the risk is. It's like. How much risk are you willing to take? So assess the risk and then make make a decision based off of that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and um, I would say like I, I had a couple experiences where we, we went out with a big crew and we didn't have permits and I was the AD in this situation and um, we were, you know, in the street all day outside and, uh, you know, we had like, it wasn't a huge crew, but it was probably like 15 to 20 people. And we had a truck and we were putting lights, you know, like 20 feet in the air on humongous stands and stuff like that. And all day, no problem. And then at around eight o'clock at night, one of the actors who was our like bigger star or whatever, he had his convertible and he peeled out down the street, blasting music up and down, blasting music, and then peeled out on his way out, you know, and, uh, that like got a couple of phone calls to the cops they rolled up an hour later uh we were like just finishing up i went over and talked to them and uh i told them we didn't have a permit but we're only going to be like another hour or two and we just got to get this last shot and he was like yeah just keep it down we had some complaints but no problem and they uh you know went away and as they circled back to drive by us as we were shooting they turned their lights off as to not disturb our shot as they drove by (laughs) That's and nice. I've, I mean, it's like, it's unbelievable. Like that would never happen probably anywhere else, you know, in like a major city, like in New York or, or LA, that would never go down that way. And it no, probably, it might not ever go down that way again, even here. But I mean, I just think that like you can get lucky with guerrilla shooting, but it really is. The key word is lucky. In my short film, we did, a, we had a lot of debate about whether or not we were going to get permits because we were shooting outside on the streets of San Francisco. And we decided at the end, we were just going to go and shoot it. And we were going to talk to kind of 
the buildings or parking lots around that area and get their permission. So that way, if anybody came, we were like, oh, no, we have permission. You know, we're we're affiliated with the parking lot right here. Or this building said we could shoot inside their lobby. So that way we had a, a good excuse. And then if somebody said, oh, no, you need a permit for the street, we'd be like, oh, well, we didn't know. Yeah. So that's how we did it. And we it was fine. I've never actually been shut down for not having permits. Yeah, I, I have a couple times, but like only in places where, you know, it's it's really obvious that we shouldn't we should have tried to pull it off. Like I, at the ferry <laughs> building, for instance, I've shot a couple oh, things yeah. there, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, there's a lot of tricks you could use because some of the news um, teams have some uh, you know silent agreements with the ferry building to shoot stuff there. So I, I actually dropped some names from a producer at KPIX in the in the old days and uh, when I was like a PA and actually it worked, you know? Or even sometimes you can just drop a name and then the security guard has to go back to his desk and check with that person. That might buy you enough time to get your shot and get out of there. So I've done that a couple of times too where you're just like, yeah, I talked to, uh, you know, just get the name of the person who you would have to get the permit from at the building. I talked to Susan or over you know in the whatever department and yeah like we got it all set up like you just go check with her like you know we will you know that'd be great thanks so much and just be really nice and then you know maybe you'll get you'll get away with it you know um okay what's the next question so at Brile media asks um i'm listening to episode four i'm a 35 year old who's just in the past year decided to pursue filmmaking it took this long to find what i love am i fucked um <laughs> timothy take this one please you're totally fucked. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, I already wrote him on the side and I told him, like, D don't lose faith. Like, you're not completely fucked. Um, there's plenty of examples of people that got late starts that found success. So I, I don't think that you should give up. If this is something you love to do, you're not going to give up. So don't worry about your age or where you're starting out. I would just focus on getting really good at it. The example of people who took a, a little bit longer to, to figure it out, um, the guy who directed The Help, if you know anything about his story, that was his second feature film, but he got super lucky. He knew the writer of The Help before the book got published and liked it and asked to get the rights to make a movie from her before it became a big thing. So when it became a bestseller, he already had the movie rights and he just put himself on as a director. And then also the guy who wrote Nebraska, I think he's in his 50s, and that was his first movie, and he nice. got an Academy Award nomination for it. Awesome. Yeah, I, so. also, I also talked to Braille Media on the side, and my big example was Joe Cornish, who directed Attack the Block. He was uh, 40, I think, when he directed that, that movie, and that was his first feature. Um, oh, wow. So that's a really cool story. story. Yeah. And there's a really great commentary track on the Blu-ray uh, with him and Edgar Wright talking about um, the movie. And they specifically talk about first features. So they talk about Edgar Wright's first feature experience and how that went down. And then it translates to Joe talking about, like, you know, why it took him so long to make his first feature and, you know, how that actually in the end helped him make a way better movie that like if he tried to make it when he wanted to make his first feature in his 20s, he would not have been able to tell the story that he told in his 40s. And uh, he was basically like, I had, you know, 20 years of uh, filmmaking blue balls 
uh, but it paid off, you know. <laughs> and if you've seen that movie, it's That's a br- it's a brilliant sh- brilliant uh, sci-fi fi movie. It's so cool, and so you know, you, you can see the intention in every cut and every shot, and that yeah, like this guy. He put his all into it. Yeah, and I think the other thing is, is we've talked a lot about like filmmaking experience, but I think life is experience is just as important. And I, I think that there's few cases where very young filmmakers are making really amazing films because they just don't have the life experience to say anything. I think the older you get, the more you have to say. And yeah, I just think there's this there's this whole like sort of feeling and thought, and maybe it's just a, a myth out there that. You know, you need to start young because, like, some of the most famous people did, like Spielberg or yeah. Lucas or, Tarantino. you know. Orson Welles killed it for me. He what, he was, like, 21 or 22 when he made Citizen Kane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's insane. That's totally insane, especially when you look at how epic that movie is and it, like, spans the entire life of someone. All right. So, at Mr. Evan Kidd asks, what do you look for when you view indie films? It's a niche, especially micro budgets. And I had to get clarification. So I said, when you say look for, do you mean what we think makes a good, compelling indie film, the type that audiences will care about? And then Mr. Evan Kidd responds, yeah, both that and just personal taste even, both as a filmmaker and a viewer. I don't look at indie films any different than I look at a Hollywood film. Like for me, film is film. It's all about some compelling story or character that like I just enjoy watching. Yeah, no, same, same for me. I mean, I'm I'm just looking for the most cool, most interesting thing that I can watch. And I mean, I'm really in the sci-fi horror genre right now. So I mean, most of the indie stuff, like, I mean, I'll watch anything, but if, if something has a sci-fi edge to it or some sort of horror sci-fi edge or something new and interesting that you can, like, sort of already gleam just from the title or the uh, poster, that's something that I'm, like, interested in watching, you know? Yeah, and I think what indie film does better than Hollywood is the new and interesting. Like, they come at things from a different angle. So I'm always looking for something that I haven't seen before. Yeah, something new. Like, something new like a new take on things like a a new type of character that we haven't seen before a new setting a new story like just something that just kind of breaks the mold and you're like oh wow like that sounds super cool i the movie that just popped into my head was pixar's inside out i know Mm. it's not an indie film but when i saw that i was like holy crap that is just such a new novel concept done so amazingly well and that that movie just blew me away and i think because it was so new and different was the reason that i that i liked it so much yeah and you know it's, it's sort of unfortunate but you know what i look for in indie film i look for things that i've heard are good from other people whether it's um just on twitter or you know through an article like in a, on an indie wire or you know ain't it cool or whatever like or a review on rotten tomatoes or 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 just or through a podcast or whatever like movies that people are talking about those are the movies that i that i seek out so like uh blue ruin was one that people were talking about in a big way because it was like at um can and you know got bought you know or whatever and then sort of got buried and so it was like there's a big topic about it so i sought that movie out and that was amazing and then um, there was another one called Spring that I mentioned before that I was hearing a lot about, so I sought that one out. Um, so yeah, I mean, 
it's just it's word of mouth for me too like i i like recommendations from you know either credible sources or from people that i know you know sometimes just that one liner of what the movie's about will catch me and i'll be like oh i want to see that that sounds cool there's yeah. a movie called rubber a few years ago oh, yeah that was about like a, a psychic killing rubber tire and there was just like such a weird bizarre premise i just had to see it it wasn't that good, but yeah, sometimes just like that little one-liner of like, oh, this is what the movie's about, and if it sounds different than anything I've seen before, I'll I'll go check it out. Yeah, I heard a lot about Rubber when it came out, just from reading it on, online and stuff. And then a friend of mine saw it, and he said the same thing you said, and I was like, oh well, don't have to see it then. It was weird. Okay, so at Ken the filmmaker says movies are cheap to make now, so those established can put more out. So it's harder for us to get our scene. How do we deal? You got to be your biggest fan, right? You have to just get the word out, you know, and just promote, 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 and tell everybody about your movie and send it out to everybody. And just, uh, you know, you've got to be the loudest voice in the sea of voices. I don't know. That's yeah, my let's, take. Let's pair this up with the next question, too, at, at the Someone Film. Kind of ask a similar thing. We'd love to get some promotion and media tips for indie filmmakers to up views and expand audience for their indie film. So... I don't know exactly what Ken means when he's saying that it's it's easy for the easier for those people that are more established to put more out. What I see is it's easier for everyone to make a movie. So now even on Twitter sometimes I'm when I'm following people and I see how many film and films and filmmakers are out there it's just sometimes so daunting. It's not even that I'm uh, that I'm competing with established filmmakers. I'm competing with every filmmaker no matter what level they're at. How do you get your voice heard? So I think Ulrich is probably much better at promotion than I am. He's had a huge success with his film. I've only managed to get a few hundred or a few thousand views on stuff that I've made. So, And you did a podcast with somebody recently about um, planning like the marketing of your film and, and like how to use online presence versus like film festivals. And I think you guys talked about some of like the more popular films that are out like Kung Fury and oh, Leviathan yeah. and kind of like how those things got to be like these big, huge kind of media sensations. Right. Well, I can't really speak to like that on a personal level. Cause I mean, I was a backer of, um, you know, Kung Fury but, um, you know, I think what you do, you just have to really reach out to people and find a connection. And, and it starts with making something that people will like and want to see. So the Kung Fury people, I don't know exactly what their rollout for their Kickstarter was, but I know it wasn't just putting it on Kickstarter and hoping for the best. I, I know that they reached out to a bunch of different websites and d different blogs and publications and really were able to build up um, some hype about the project uh, from the get-go that way because they got posted on ain't it cool news right away they got posted on you know a lot of these big websites and i, and I think once I, they, they made their goal like extremely fast like in a day or two and then once that happened they were able to get on every other major website um from that so i think it's all about your exposure and like who you're able to get people who you're able to get to write about you you know like what blogs and what um, writers will, will actually tell a story and put it out into their network and put it onto their website, you know? And so for me, for Strange Thing, what I did is I sort of just followed the model that's on um, Short of the Week. 
because uh, they have a whole outline of like why you should go to the show of the week and why you shouldn't go to a film festival and like there's like a case study of, of their film that they did uh, through festivals and then they did online and the differences so I just sort of looked at their explanation and just copied it so like I you know wrote a um, hundred emails to like a hundred different blogs and I focused on science fiction and horror blogs and I even went to specifically Star Trek blogs because there's a big Star Trek sort of um, focus with my short I got it on to um, it wasn't on short of the week but it was on film shortage and so I got them to uh, premiere it, and then I basically emailed 100 people saying, my film is premiering on this date on film shortage. Here's all the information about it. Would you, uh, you know, please check it out, and, you know, if you'd like to, to post it on YouTube or whatever, and, you know, uh, that, would be, uh, that would be amazing. You know, and I just did that 100 times, and, um, yeah, I, I got, I think, about 10 or so different articles written about the movie from that. And then I also just hit Facebook and, tw and not Twitter as much, but mostly just Facebook. I hit Facebook super hard and uh, got everybody that I'd ever met, um, you know, through my, my film festival circuit and got them to write, to, to post it onto their Facebook, asked every film festival that I ever played at to post it on their Facebook. And I just did that, and most people posted it. It it just got out there, you know. And, and basically, what got it over twenty thousand hits was like, I think after two or three days, I had maybe three thousand, five thousand hits from just like my guerrilla work and the few articles I had written about it. And it didn't get posted in anything big. But yeah, I mean, there was one big article that was written on a, a website called Movie Pilot, and uh, that launched like I think all, just a week after the movie launched on a Sunday. And uh, within one day, it had 12,000 hits. And then the next day, it had another 12,000 hits. And so it was just like, it just exploded it, you know? Well, I think what's interesting, I've learned a lot from you just over the, the past few months and like us doing these podcasts and talking to you more about it, that I, I kind of stopped at that point where I'd reached out to everyone I knew and got them to see it. And right now that the Spirit Machine teaser is the one that has the most views on it which is like 3,000 so it's funny you said like at that point after you've kind of hit everyone you've you've known you get like a few thousand and then to like get to the next level you really do have to keep pushing pushing beyond all the people you know and get it written about it I mean so it sounds so much like advertising that you just got to get the word out to as many people to hear it and then beyond that if your film is worth recognition it'll just keep blowing up from there yeah and i mean i could have kept going too like i i i did like still would like find different blogs i hadn't emailed out to or different like websites that might be interested in, in it and so i would send an additional email every once in a while after that but i could have kept that same work up for like you know a month and probably reached like twice or three times as many people but i just you know i had to move on to other things because you know i'm just trying to make another movie and you know, I have work and stuff. So, you know, it's just like if you put the time in, you can you can do anything, really. I mean, it's just yeah, about it takes time. doing the it. The filmmaker that I met with earlier this week has around 4 million views on his short. And I want to find out from him how he got that many. Because I know we talked a little bit about Leviathan, which came out earlier this year. And they got millions of views on it. But it seemed like that was more of a orchestrated PR Thing that they probably already kind of had a lot of stuff set up before it rolled out. It felt very natural and viral, but it probably wasn't as viral as it seemed. 
Yeah, I think that that's probably true for for most of the things that are um, you know that really successful is that they probably do have some sort of PR person or even if it's not a, a professional PR person, it's somebody who's dedicating their time to to PR. You know, and then that is kind of how it gets uh, gets exploded. And I think that's true for like, you know, most ex- like really really successful Kickstarters is like they all go into it, you know, putting a ton of work on the front end before they get started. You know. So we're going to talk a lot more about this. We have a whole episode dedicated to this coming up. I think it might be episode eighteen. Um, so let's stop there. That I mean, that's all. That's a topic for an entire episode. Yeah. Uh, hopefully. That gives you some, you guys, something to to start with and inspire you. Yeah, yeah. Get inspired. Absolutely. So the next question, at Fred Rose Film asks, where's the audience for indie cinema? Art house theater, video on demand? Where do you screen your films? The landscape is totally changing. You know, like in the 90s, it was all about the, the art house indie movie theater. Right. And there's a lot of opportunities for indie filmmakers to get their film seen. Now it seems like what's going on inside the cinema is everything's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You can even see it online, I think, with the films that people are are watching, the small ones, the short ones. They all seem to be kind of sci-fi-based, action-oriented, and something that you and I complain about don't have a lot of story. Yeah, big, so, loud, uh, spectacle, spectacle, special yeah. effects. <laughs> and, the, and you look at that, that's what's going on online, and then you look at what's popular in the movie theaters, Avengers, ant-man jurassic world you know it's like it's just big spectacles so where is the audience for indie cinema i don't know i don't know where these people are i think that um it's definitely changed a lot and i think that they'll will become a home of for indie filmmakers at a certain point i I think it's kind of in flux now because i feel like the entertainment world's kind of broken between the big Hollywood blockbuster and the amazing TV shows that are on right now. Like everyone seems to think that TV is a new movie. So it does leave us filmmakers kind of in this weird gray area where people are less interested in movies unless they're huge spectaculars, which we can't afford, or they're interested in television shows that have 10 to 13 episodes, which we also can't afford and can't compete with. So we're going to have to figure it out ourselves. I think we're going to have to create, carve out our own part of the industry. Yeah. I'm not sure where, where it is yet. I, you know, and I kind of think that there might be a, a big change coming in the way that films are made and produced. Like, like it's like you just can't go bigger and bigger and bigger forever. Eventually, you're going to have to rethink your, your process. So I think movies like Ex Machina that have done really well, that it's like an independent movie that, you know, has found an audience and people really like and enjoy. I think hopefully there'll be more of those types of movies popping up in, in future years where there's these small, you know, small casts, small concept, lower budget movies are going to start, um, you know, getting more of a spotlight. I mean, maybe that's just me being really uh, optimistic and enthusiastic about the future of filmmaking, but uh, I, I mean, there has to be a correction at some point. It's just like any bubble; like you just can't go bigger, bigger, bigger forever, and 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 never and never stop. It just doesn't work that way. Kind of where I see things headed is that audiences for everything are going to get smaller. Yeah. We all need to be happier with smaller groups of people that really like our work rather than chasing after the big, broad 
audience that goes to the movie theaters and sees things. So I think we need to think about a model that works for us on a small level and not think about how do we attract millions of people to our movie, but maybe how do we just get like a thousand diehard fans of what we're doing? A thousand might be enough to, to sustain yourself. And yeah. you think about Steven Spielberg's first movie when he was like 13 years old and he he rented a theater and sold tickets for like a dollar to go see his movie. And I think he made a dollar profit off of it. Wow. There's some indie filmmakers that in San Francisco that just made a documentary about coffee and they're self-distributing it. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're renting a theater for the night in different cities around the world, Tokyo, San Francisco, New York, and they're just making a big event and they're showing their movie one time, selling tickets for it. They're only making money if they sell out. So they're concentrating all their attention on that one night. And I think that's an interesting way to do it. It'll probably not be a movie that hits like the mainstream that everyone hears about. But for the people that go see it, they're, you know, they might be able to develop, develop a little bit of a following. And then if they do another movie, they can call on the same people and have them come out. So, you know, I think just think small. How can you make it sustainable for yourself and make it fun? I know my goal is to see things in a movie theater with an audience. So the, the part of the reason I bring this up is because in my head, that's one of the ways that I would probably play it. Yeah, I think that's smart. I think the audiences are getting smaller. That's already happened, you know, because there's just so many different things out there to watch that, you know, the audience is getting, um, you know, separated and just off into little niche, um, you know, areas. But I think video on demand is really where indie movies are going to really play big, you know, and it's already happening. And I mean, I, I, get, I hear recommendations for oh, it's on Netflix streaming right now for so many movies. You just did it last week, actually, for the yeah. spring. Yeah, and I don't think it's a bad thing. I think sometimes filmmakers see video on demand. Oh, I want the theatrical release, and I think it's like, so what? Video on demand is great. Like, a lot, a lot, everyone's going to be able to see it. It's going to be on there. You're hopefully going to get um, a, a half decent deal for it. Maybe I don't know. Maybe not. But uh, I just think like. That's where your audience is, so don't be afraid of it. Go for it, you know? You have to look at it in two different ways. Like One is the business side of things, and if you, you're just looking to make money, you're probably going to make money off of video on, on demand. If you're looking for that audience movie theater experience, then that just might be something that you can't rely on somebody else providing for you, and you might have to create it for yourself, like I was talking about with that coffee film. So decide what you really want and figure out how to make it happen, but just like with filmmaking, you can't rely on other people to open the doors for you. You have to create the opportunity for yourself. So if seeing it in a theater with other people is really important for you, you got to make that happen. All right. Well, so what's your thing this week? Anything that you want learned or anything at all? Anything fun? Uh, why don't you start? I can't think of anything right now, but sometimes after hearing you talk, I'll come up with something. Yeah. What was I going to say? I was going to say something. Um, Ah, okay, here's it. Because I, I, I didn't really talk about this, but I was feeling really, not down, but just sort of discouraged um, lately. Um, just because I, I met a bunch of uh, different filmmakers who, you know, have more experience than me. And, uh, you know, like the guy that you that you pointed me to, who you met with this week, who has like all those movies that have like, a, you know, a million hits or like 500 like, five, you know, 50,000 hits or whatever. And like, you know, you're talking about his struggles. And it's like, geez, if you have multiple movies that have over 50,000 hits each online and you're still having struggles, it's like, geez, like, where am I headed? 
And I think, um, you know, I think the lesson there is like, don't really worry about what other people are doing. Just do, focus on what you're doing. I know what you're saying. I'm having the same feelings over the last week, especially after a meeting with Colin. Because it is hard to when you see people that are doing either better movies than you or are more successful than you. And then if they're still having the same struggles that you are, you're like, well, gosh, if they're better than me and they're, they seem to have more success than me and they're doing about the same as me professionally, that sucks. Like, it, it is really discouraging. Um, I don't know how you ignore it, though. It's really hard to ignore it. Yeah, I think you just need to just stay focused and realize that we're all we're all in the same experience together, and that you know, like, just because one person has this many movies out and they're in this certain position, and and you know another person has one movie out, and you know it's their first feature that they got to direct, and they had never directed anything before. I think it just doesn't matter. Everyone's experience is different. Everyone's path is different. So you can't really compare yourself to another filmmaker. Maybe that's what it is. It's just kind of reflecting on what you've done and just be proud of what you've accomplished. Cause you, you are where you are because of the choices that you made leading up to that point. Like you can't think about them as good or bad. You're always making the best decision for you at the time. Right. In hindsight, it's always 2020 and you can think about, Oh, I should have done it this way. But you are where you are, and that's a cool thing. Yeah. You should appreciate it. And it's hard. I know how hard it is to appreciate it because I, I struggle with that if yeah. not daily, at least weekly. You're just like, oh, man, I wish that I had done more. I wish that my film had turned out better. I wish that I had pushed harder to, to market my film so I had more hits on YouTube, like whatever it is. But whatever decision you made at the time was the right one and embrace it and just make a document for yourself that says at the top of it, do better next time. Yeah. And write down all the things you can do better next time and make the next one the one that you don't make any mistakes on. You're yeah. Gonna make, I'll be honest, you're going to keep making mistakes, but at least you can try to not make mistakes by just keeping track of what you want to do better. Yeah, that's good advice. And, you know, the other thing I think of is uh, I listened to this commentary by Tim Burton on the Batman, the first Batman movie, and uh, he talked about, like, how that was the hardest experience of his life making that movie and he was like it's never going to be this hard again it's like never going to be like this and then he was like i hate to tell you but each movie is harder <laughs> than the last movie so it, it never true. gets any easier so don't don't think that you're just going to magically reach a level and it's going to get easier because if tim burton one of the most famous uh celebrated directors in the world is, is talking about that about his experience it, it's like we're all in the same boat here, guys. I, I feel like the more movies I make, the harder it becomes because I know better. There's like some naive, naivete that comes with starting out making movies. You don't know better, but the more films you make, the more things you write, you see where the pitfalls are and it's harder to solve for them because you know you know where things aren't right. Um, who is it? Is it Alec Berg? Is that Alex oh, yeah. Berg or Alec Berg? It's Alec Berg. Alec Berg, like his, his podcast episode on script notes was great because he was talking a lot about that. And he said that I'm not running with it. I'm not running towards success. I'm running away from failure. And that's kind of how it feels like the more you do it, the more you see what the, where the failures are. And you're trying not to replicate the failure rather than like, I feel when I started out, I was always thinking about the success. Like, how can I make 
make this successful. Now I'm just like kind of looking back and be like, well, I don't want to make that mistake again. I don't want to make that mistake again. So it's like, I know where all the failure points are. Right, right, right. And that, you know, it, it goes to that Woody Allen, and I, I feel exactly like this. It's a Woody Allen quote that they quote in that episode where it's like, I'm just trying not to embarrass myself when I make a movie. <laughs> yeah. and, and I kind of yeah. feel like editing brother right now, like that's exactly what I'm, I'm just trying not to embarrass myself. Like, yeah. you know, I don't want people to look at this and be like, what the, what the hell? Like, I just want people to be like, oh yeah, that's a movie. <laughs> like, okay, cool. We're good. <laughs> but yeah, it does. It gets so much harder. The longer I do it, the harder it is. But then you just got to work harder and push yourself forward. And, you know, yeah, you really do. It just takes more energy and it's, it has nothing to do with getting older. I think it just comes with experience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that is the end of this epic 10, uh, episode 10. Uh, so to help other people find us, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at MMIH podcast and uh, me at Ulrich B. And what about you, Timothy Plain? I'm on Twitter at Timothy Plain, and we also have a Facebook page. You know, find us wherever you can, help support the show, tell your friends about us, and yeah, let us know what you think. We're so happy that you're listening, though. It's absolutely, been awesome. yeah. Even if it's just five of you, we're really, really happy to have you guys listening to this thing. It's uh, pretty yeah. awesome. It's so awesome. Cool. Yeah. All right. Good. You better get to writing now. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Gotta. Gotta. Gotta do it. (laughs) All right, see you guys. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.